Hello, welcome to the Monash University Perioperative Medicine podcast series. My name is Christine Ball and today I'm talking with Dr. Simon Hendel, who is a specialist anaesthetist at the Alfred with a special interest in trauma and pre-hospital and retrieval medicine. And today we're going to talk about massive transfusions. So, Simon, the first question is obvious. What is a massive transfusion? Uh, yeah, thanks. thanks for having me, Chris. Um, so a massive transfusion uh, has a number of definitions. The most commonly quoted definition is the uh, administration of 10 units of red blood cells over a 24-hour period. Now, the obvious um, problem with that definition is that it's essentially retrospective, so it's not necessarily very useful um, for the patient who's bleeding in front of you. And so as a consequence of that, a, a number of other definitions have been uh, used and do get used by various uh, centres and practitioners. The, uh, one of the other um, definitions that gets used commonly is the transfusion of more than three units of uh, packed red blood cells in an hour, uh, or uh, perhaps the, the most immediate uh, definition of uh, massive transfusion would be the uh, loss of blood of, of greater than 150 mils a minute, um, which is obviously pretty, pretty brisk bleeding. Yes, obviously. So maybe that leads on to the next question then. What is the origin of the modern massive transfusion protocol? So the recognition um, of a massive transfusion protocol or the, the um, development of a massive transfusion protocol has come out of uh, the recognition of um, patients who were particularly or at least initially trauma patients, often in the military or, or um, combat uh, setting, who've who've been observed to uh, have a survival benefit um, if they received uh, large or required large volumes of blood product resuscitation and, that, and they received those blood products in a balanced way uh, in a ratio that essentially approximated uh, uh, whole blood. So in a, in a ratio of, you know, often quoted one to one to one of uh, FFP platelets and red blood cells. Um, the the origins, so we take a step back from the current protocol, the origins of that um, in conflict, in the conflict environment in Iraq and Afghanistan um, saw that a lot of patients were getting to uh, forward surgical centres or, or initial surgical centres and, and receiving large uh, volumes of blood product. And then uh, many of the practitioners would go back to trauma centres in, uh, you know, continental United States and, and other um, developed um, civilian settings and realised that uh, perhaps there was apl application to this type of resuscitation in, um, in the civilian population. And so the massive transfusion protocol has really been born out of that as a, recogni a recognition of, of trying to formalise the approach um, to the patient who has critical bleeding uh, or bleeding um, for which a massive transfusion is likely to be required rather than the sort of uh, previously uh, operator dependent relatively ad hoc approach um, to uh, blood product resuscitation. So when do you think a massive transfusion should be started in a trauma patient? Uh, well, Chris, I guess if we're talking predominantly about trauma patients, which most of mostly we are, obviously there are exceptions to that. There are mm -hmm. there are circumstances where a massive transfusion will occur in the non-trauma patient, um, and in, and in fact, probably most massive transfusions occur in cardiac surgery. Um, but in the trauma patient, um, really the aim um, of whichever trauma patient uh, you're looking after should be to start. 
um, a massive transfusion or pick the patients who are going to need a massive transfusion early and start that massive transfusion as soon as possible after injury. So that means in many circumstances, uh, initiating or starting a massive transfusion um, with whether that's um, red cell concentrate or some version of red cell, um, packed red cells in the pre-hospital environment. And that's certainly what's done in, in many uh, jurisdictions in, in uh, at least the developed world, certainly in most jurisdictions of Australia and uh, the United States and, and, and Europe. Uh, and uh, continuing that massive transfusion protocol or, or rather massive transfusion uh, on into the hospital care and, and into either in intensive care or the operating suite or interventional radiology. And the, the rationale for that is to minimise the time where a patient is not receiving useful resuscitation or receiving excess crystalloid resuscitation, which we know, um, again, mostly from observational studies and animal models, uh, uh, doesn't, it tends to dilute the patient's already um, depleting coagulation um, factors. So the pre-hospital setting, I presume there's triggers, well-recognised triggers for the need for a massive transfusion. So again, the triggers would be in relation to uh, either the type of injury that's occurred, mm -hmm. um, so the mechanism of injury, uh, also uh, clinical triggers in the same way that there are clinical triggers if patients uh, appear uh, in, the, in the hospital or, or trauma uh, bays, uh, in, and, and that's where those definitions, those real-time definitions of massive transfusion are important, so the 150 millimetre of bleeding. But certainly the massive trauma, the major trauma patient who has, um, you know, severe thoracic trauma, severe abdominal and pelvic trauma or multiple long bone fractures, these are patients who we know are likely to be able to lose large volumes of blood uh, into either body cavities or around long bones or indeed onto the roadside, into the cabin of the car or onto the floor of the recess bay. Um, and need to have that blood product replaced with, well, that, that whole blood replaced with blood products. Um, I won't get into whether or not um, there's a, a good role or good quality evidence for the use of whole blood in the transfusion of uh, uh, management of trauma patients. There is some talk about doing that, and certainly that's been done in some places at some points in history. But at the moment, certainly in Australia, most um, resuscitation in trauma with blood is a um, is is done in in blood products, so separated blood products used in ratios to provide balanced resuscitation. So in a pre-hospital setting, what sort of products are they likely to have available? So it depends on, on what jurisdiction. So in Australia, uh, the majority of pre-hospital and retrieval services, whether and, and most of these would be in the sort of HEMS environment, the Helicopter Emergency Medical Service um, uh, response rather than on road. Most, most of these services would carry uh, red cells of some kind, whether that be red cell concentrate or packed red blood cells in a, um, in a uh, you know, pre-packaged um, box. And most helicopter services in this country carry in the order of four units of red cells um, in, uh, in the helicopter with them. At the moment in Australia, there isn't a, a, a big push 
um, for the use, or certainly it's not licensed in Australia to use it anyway, but in, in some uh, parts of the United Kingdom and in Europe, they're using freeze-dried plasma uh, in addition to, um, to red cell concentrate or red cells. In, in Australia, that's, that isn't the practice in the pre-hospital services um, that are obviously state-based, but, but tends not to be the, the practices in the pre-hospital services. And in many ways, um, the observation at least is that, uh, is that the, the earlier you get red blood cells into patients when they're um, critically bleeding from trauma, uh, the, the less likely it is for them to go on and develop a coagula uh, coagulopathy. And one of the theories around that is that if you give red blood cells early, it marginalises the patient's um, endogenous platelets and, and clot clotting factors, um, rather than if you give crystalloid early where it dilutes those clotting factors. And so the, the observation is that in the patient who doesn't have severe head injury, that they also uh, tend to have less coagulopathy um, if you get red blood cell and red blood products to them in the pre-hospital space. Okay, so if we look at when they get to the hospital now and we are looking at instituting a protocol, we could expect that some of these patients are already going to be a bit off kilter for the protocol because they've already had a lot of red blood cells. Well, I guess they, they won't have had a lot of red blood cells. They may have received, you know, four units of red blood cells. Um, there are perhaps some exceptions to that where they may have received more. Um, uh, but if by the time they, a patient arrives um, into the trauma bay or into a hospital resuscitation room, whether that's a, a major trauma centre or not, um, if the patient's still bleeding or has um, the sort of injuries that suggest they are going to have ongoing bleeding, then it's still appropriate to activate and use a massive transfusion protocol. And then that protocol, part of the protocol, is having um, various um, aims. Uh, mm -hmm. And those aims in, in many of the protocols will be, you know, things like um, making sure that uh, the temperature is above 35 degrees, um, aiming for a pH above 7.2, a base excess of less than minus 6, keeping a lactate less than 4, um, maintaining a normal calcium or at least a calcium greater than 1 or 1.1, 1 .1, uh, maintaining platelets of greater than 50 uh, and a, a prothrombin time of uh, less than 1.5 times normal or an INR of less than 1.5 depending on, on the lab, uh, and then maintaining a fibrinogen of, of greater than 1. All of those aims are about trying to maintain as normal a physiology as possible um, and uh, to avoid essentially the bloody vicious cycle, which is that cycle that trauma patients get into if they've suffered major, major injury uh, where they end up with hypothermia, acidosis and worsening coagulopathy. Um, and of course, all of this is happening in, it's not an isolated event. Um, the massive transfusion protocol is, has, may have been implemented and a massive transfusion is happening, while at the same time, um, the other um, primary and secondary survey and, and, and managing the trauma patient are occurring simultaneously. So trying to turn off and, and, and uh, stop some of the bleeding points is as important as providing balanced resuscitation. In fact, that's really the cornerstone of, mm. of the management of the major tra trauma patient, if you boil it all down, is to um, stop the bleeding, replace the blood that's been lost, uh, and normalise physiology as much as possible um, to improve oxygen and oxygenation to the tissues. Sure. So given that we have started a massive transfusion protocol and that we accept that they're helpful, what should happen when they're triggered? We've talked about some of the goals, but how should this actually happen? So it'll be dependent on, on each facility. Each each sort of hospital should and and 
often has developed its own um, internal massive transfusion protocol. And the Australian uh, Red Cross um, has a, a suggested uh, template for how a massive transfusion protocol should be devised um, for an individual hospital. And while they'll have regional variation, the, the basic um, premise of the massive tr transfusion protocol is that whoever the senior clinician is at the time um, makes the assessment and decides that a patient, particular patient meets the criteria for a massive transfusion protocol. And those are the sort of criteria that we've, we've talked about already. Um, and uh, would then take a baseline series of blood tests um, and would then notify their, their either in-house or, or um, local transfusion lab laboratory and, and tell them to activate the massive transfusion protocol. What that should mean is that uh, those staff will then um, understand that there's a patient who has critical bleeding and that changes a number of things that they're going to be able to do. Now, I'm not a haematologist, so I sure. can't necessarily speak with detailed knowledge about what it is specifically that the lab will do or the lab staff will do, but what what in general terms they'll do is that they'll anticipate that there's going to be an increased load um, of testing requirements. There'll be an increased requirement for thawing FFP and for um, releasing blood products to for that patient to the um, resuscitation that's ongoing or the, the balanced resuscitation that's ongoing. And they'll liaise with their on-call haematologist who can provide some guidance and advice about which products to give um, and at what ratios. Now, the intention behind um, all of these massive transfusion protocols is to approximate as best as, as possible a uh, transfusion ratio of one to one to one or one to one to two, depending on um, which, uh, I guess, kind of approach is being taken by that institution at that time. There is some loose and weak evidence that suggests that one to one to one will result in less exsanguination and earlier hemostasis, um, but there is no as yet mortality benefit that's been proved by any um, prospective studies that shows a difference in outcome between one to one to one or one to one to two. But back to the protocol, what will happen then for the clinician is that they should receive either some blood products in usually in, in the way of four units of red blood cells and often a couple of units of FFP plus or minus some platelets, depending on the institution. And then they might also, um, depending on the hospital they're in, receive some adjuncts to that. So they might get some tranexamic acid. Um, tranexamic acid is uh, used in some centres based on data from the CRASH-2 trial. Um, there, that trial uh, suggested a mortality benefit for trauma patients who received tranexamic acid within three hours of injury. However, there's pr pretty significant criticism of that trial and there's ongoing research now to determine whether or not in the developed system or the, the, um, the sort of system that, that much of urban Australia would uh, enjoy, uh, whether or not there's any good quality um, uh, mortality benefit for those patients to receive tranexamic acid. The main criticism of CRASH-2 being that it was uh, non-homogenous um, groups that were compared. So there were a, a large number of um, trauma centres from uh, low and middle income countries that were included and grouped in the overall data, um, which suggests, and, and the criticism is therefore that, well, if you are part of a very uh, sophisticated trauma system, um, will you still see that benefit? Um, so they may get some tranexamic acid in the mix and, the, and they might also receive, if the, if the patient's fibrinogen, for example, was less than one, um, they might receive some cryoprecipitate. 
um, or the haematologist might suggest cryoprecipitate in place of FFP if the, if the fibrinogen was particularly low. And what happens when suddenly everything's under control and you've still got a whole bunch of product because it's all still coming up? At what point do you decide, I'm not going to give all these things um, because we're now okay, or do you just keep giving them so that the ratios stay right? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I guess that that's, that's an, it's a difficult question to answer in that there's no one um, answer for all patients uh, about whether or not, about at, at which point you should stop the massive transfusion protocol. What it is important to say is that uh, once a massive transfusion protocol has been started, it is important at some point to stop it because the lab in your hospital will uh, have allocated extra resources to running that protocol. And depending on the size of the lab, that may be a significant burden in terms of workforce and in terms of blood product, um, particularly in terms of blood product that's being thawed, so in, in terms of FFP. Um, in terms of stopping the, the massive transfusion, it's a balance point between um, likelihood of ongoing loss, assessment of whether or not the, that loss has been replaced in an adequate um, way, and whether or not it's likely um, that uh, the patient is, has any un, as yet undiagnosed areas of bleeding and that that bleeding is ongoing or can't be stopped easily. Um, it's not uncommon for you know, um, dozens of units of blood to be needed for the seriously or severely injured person requiring a massive transfusion. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that doesn't answer your question. That goes around and around in circles, doesn't it, Chris? But uh, the answer is that uh, without being facetious that a massive transfusion needs to be stopped when it's not needed anymore. Mm. Um, and the assessment for that will be much more on those aims we talked about in terms of some of the physiological parameters uh, in relation to uh, acid base status, um, uh, coagulation um, parameters, and um, perhaps calcium and, and uh, uh, INR mm. or coagulation studies, rather than haemoglobin, I guess is the key point. Haemoglobin is a slow um, guide and an unreliable guide for the requirement of blood products in the trauma patient who is um, suffering critical bleeding. So we talked about trauma and you did mention cardiac. Now there's obviously other places where massive transfusion protocols are relevant and I was thinking particularly about obstetrics which is a particularly uh, particular group of people but also often not likely to be in a major. You can't always have a massive transfusion protocol, you don't have the resources but are there lessons or things we can learn from the massive transfusion protocol data that you can use in regional centres that don't have all these facilities? So yes, there absolutely is. Um, and, and I guess I would say that just because you don't have a large, um, you know, 24-hour fully stocked um, or even overstocked blood bank, as many of, us are, many of us are fortunate to work in places where that is the case, but, but obviously many of us are not, um, the, you, that doesn't preclude having a massive transfusion protocol. So um, the protocol itself is more a way of organising um, the approach to the patient who has critical bleeding, and the protocol itself can be adjusted for local um, conditions. And so in the place that's a small regional or urban district even hospital or a small hospital that doesn't have a large blood bank um, that might only have four units of red cells and, and other um, perhaps small products or perhaps some prothrombinex or something like that available. Um, there's certainly still a role for having a massive transfusion protocol um, in that it will formalise the relationship between the clinician and the laboratory 
um, and it will formalise the approach to what to do with a patient who fronts up to your hospital or your operating theatre or labour ward or emergency department who suffers critical bleeding when you don't have a lot of blood product available. Um, obviously the approach will have to be adjusted for local conditions and, and if you only have four units of red blood cells and um, some, um, you know, not much else, uh, then you have to then be as balanced in your resuscitation as you can um, in that sort of patient group. And in, indeed, in, in any patient who's actively bleeding and something I, I probably didn't mention, it, you know, targeting a blood pressure of, of around 90 in the absence of head injury is a much um, much more realistic aim. And in fact, the, where you would want someone's blood pressure to be rather than aiming for normal blood pressure mm. in the patient who's actively uh, with ongoing bleeding. But part of that sort of massive transfusion protocol might be activation of the, your state's retrieval services early, um, communication with um, a, a close-by regional blood bank early to facilitate um, blood being transported to you um, early, and retrieval services can often help facilitate that. And, and in many centres, uh, not in all centres, but in many centres when a massive transfusion is activated, a massive transfusion protocol is activated rather, um, Transfusion packs are provided to the clinician that have um, ratios of red cells, plasma and, and platelets and or cryoprecipitate. Okay. Even if you are in a small hospital, it's worth having a massive transfusion protocol. It doesn't necessarily mean you've got to have all the resources, but that it will then set you up to manage this situation uh, and that there are lots of places that can help you, like the retrieval services. Yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent point to finish on. You know, it's a, the the protocol itself is is as much about formalising the relationship and the thinking and the approach to the patient who's critically bleeding, rather than saying the only place that someone can have critical bleeding is in a quaternary or tertiary trauma mm -hmm. centre with a twenty four hour blood bank. That the reality is that people can front up injured and bleeding anywhere. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.